Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're talking about your skin. Have you looked down and seen some funny shaped moles or found something on your back or maybe someone you loved their back and said, what's that? Well, today we're going to be talking about dermatology with Dr. Dylan Lee. He is an Iolani grad who did some of his training at Creighton and came back from Ohio State back here to the islands to work as a dermatologist here in our local community. And we're going to be talking about what are some common skin concerns that people have. Some things might just happen as we start doing that holiday cleaning. And what are some of the ways that you can know what's an urgent situation what can you try some over-the-counter treatments for? And when is it something you can probably just check in and see a dermatologist about once every couple of months or maybe even once a year? So I want to thank you for joining me today on The Body Show. Thanks for having me. Common things are common. And I often think about what patients come in and ask me about. And very often people come in with red, blotchy patches of skin. How do we know if that's just a standard like dermatitis, if it's just something that's a reaction to maybe a chemical, when does the red spot become something where I need your help? I think definitely if it's uh, symptomatic and it doesn't seem to be responding to maybe something that you've tried over the counter, um, maybe a lotion or moisturizer you've tried, if it's really itchy, not responding, seems to be getting worse, that's probably something that I should take a look at. So like over-the-counter hydrocortisone, is it safe to put that on stuff? Yeah, it's pretty much, uh, that's a safe place to start for pretty much a rash in any location. Neosporin, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with that. I found out a few years ago I'm allergic to some of the ingredients in Neosporin, but that was only after trying it really religiously for quite a while for what I thought was a topical infection, and I wound up causing more of an allergy yeah. from the ingredients to that than doing myself any good. Mm -hmm. What's that about? Uh, yeah, definitely I have more of a hate relationship. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever recommended Neosporin. I, I think more often than not, kind of like you said, I see patients who have tried it and are developing a reaction to it. So that's something called allergic contact dermatitis. It's one of the most common causes of it. Um, usually, the patients I see that are using it, they're putting it on some sort of cut, scrape, or wound that they have, um, thinking that they're going to help heal it or prevent infection. More often than not, though, like I said, they're getting some sort of um, allergy to it, some sort of allergic contact dermatitis. So really, the best thing that um, I usually recommend is just putting plain Vaseline or, uh, or Aquaphor or, or something just petroleum jelly-based to help heal cuts and scrapes. Petroleum jelly-based, why? Um, so there's research showing that things like neosporin, triple antibiotic, bacitracin, those things really don't prevent infection any more than, than Vaseline. Uh, in general, the skin likes to heal when there's some moisture. Um, the way that our skin heals is that our keratinocytes, our skin cells, kind of leapfrog over each other to heal wounds. And they really like doing that in more of a moist environment. So I think the petroleum jelly provides that. In addition, it provides a barrier um, itself and, and can prevent infection. So I think it's great. So at what point do you kind of let things, quote, air out? So uh, that's a great question. A lot of patients ask, you know, should I let this kind of dry out, form a scab? Generally, though, I think you really don't need to do that. It's, it's better to keep things moist with Vaseline. And then keep a cover on it if you need to. Exactly. 
And if you do think that that's developing an infection of some type, what what do you do at that point? Would you notice that it would be red around the edges? Would you notice that there might be some other type of drainage, maybe not clear drainage, but kind of getting to be a, a darker, thicker yellow? or Definitely. So redness, swelling, pain, warmth, uh, drainage of, of things like uh, purulent material or pus, those can all be good cardinal signs of an infection. But on the average, on the whole, do you have a lot of infections that tend to heal on their own? Like do most, most cuts and scrapes heal without any other attention? I would say so. And can you develop a resistance to it? I mean, a resistance to, to getting an infection. Like I often think, so I have cats at home and, you know, periodically... I want to pet them, and that's one-sided. And they will let me know about that, so they'll kind of claw and scratch. And I've noticed that you know, after a couple of years, I don't seem to get the same reaction that I used to. Can you sort of develop a tolerance to something like that? I guess uh, in some ways you can. I think a lot of times minor infections, I mean, not everything I think needs to be treated with two weeks of oral antibiotics. I think there are definitely some things that will just kind of resolve and, and get better on their own as the body's immune system takes care of things. So at what point during that initial time frame. Should you say, okay, this looks like it's going to heal on its own versus, hey, I need some extra attention. Do you give it like 72 hours, a couple of days? If it suddenly after a week starts to get red and angry looking, then you go ahead and get it checked out? Yeah, I would say, you know, if, if after a week and a half to a week, it's not getting better or if it's getting worse, then that's probably something that needs medical attention. And you could probably start out seeing your primary care provider, check it out with them, see if they can treat you, do a little infection swab if necessary, mm -hmm. see if there's some bacteria growing. And then if they can't fix it, then they may send you to see an expert like yourself yeah. in dermatology. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What are some other common things that you see on a daily basis? You were working all day today. What did people come in with? Uh, I would say we see a lot of eczema, a lot of psoriasis, also a lot of acne. Um, we also see a lot of warts. Um, those are probably some of the top things that we see on a daily basis. So let's talk about eczema and psoriasis, because to me, there's there are red spots and they're in weird places. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that's not an educated dermatology way to describe <laughs> it. So if you were to tell somebody what eczema looks like and contrast that to psoriasis, what would you say? So I would say... Um, a lot of times they can look really similar. And okay, even, I feel e better already. <laughs> even for dermatologists, it can be difficult to distinguish the two. Um, a lot of it is based on location. So psoriasis classically involves uh, areas over the elbows and over the knees, sometimes in the scalp and the lower back. Eczema likes the, the skin folds oftentimes more, so in the front of the elbows, behind the knees. Um, both of them, though, can kind of occur anywhere, um, which can be confusing. I would say psoriasis is also a little bit something that we call more well demarcated, meaning that it has clear kind of distinct borders, whereas eczema, I would say, is more poorly defined. It seems to not have clear borders, um, kind of blends into the skin a little bit. Um, psoriasis also tends to be a little bit more scaly. Um, as you see more psoriasis, you'll see that the scale in psoriasis is more thick, kind of has a silvery appearance. So those are some things that I think can usually be helpful. And what causes it? Good question. So psoriasis, I think the short answer is we still don't really know the exact cause of psoriasis. We know that there's a genetic component, and that's why a lot of times people in the same family can have psoriasis. 
And then eczema, also a genetic component where there's a protein in your skin called filaggrin that's oftentimes deficient in patients with eczema. And what that protein does is it helps your skin to retain water um, to prevent it from getting dry. So I think there's a genetic part to eczema and then also sort of a predisposition or a higher chance that your skin's going to become more dry and irritated. I often wonder because some of the treatments for some of these conditions are now these days monoclonal antibody based. Mm -hmm. So they tend to be more immune modulating medications that it must have something to do with the immune system going a little haywire. Yeah. And and that's also that brings up a good point in, in one way that we differentiate between eczema and psoriasis is that they both involve inflammation, but they're sort of on different ends of the immune spectrum. So um, psoriasis is considered more of a Th1 disease and eczema more of a Th2 disease. Um, why that matters to patients is that it, it determines what type of um, medications we use. So when we're starting with creams, a lot of times we can use similar medications for both conditions, things like topical steroids. But for patients with more severe, stubborn, widespread disease, we're looking at things like biologics, medications that target specific molecules in the immune system. And that's where things really start to kind of separate in terms of what biologics we use to treat psoriasis versus eczema. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, learning a whole bunch myself today about dermatology from my buddy, Dr. Dylan Lee. When we come right back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the other common skin things that we can all see on our skin and what can we do about it. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'm here with Dr. Dylan Lee. He is a dermatologist here in the local Honolulu community, and he has come back home after doing some training on the mainland to work in a dermatology practice at Queens Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And we are talking today about common spots and dots you might see on your skin and what is that and how do you know how to treat it? So right before the break, we talked a little bit about psoriasis and eczema, kind of the difference between the two, why the immune system might be involved, maybe different spectrums of the immune system. You mentioned one has a TH1 and another one has a TH2. I got to ask you, what does the T and the H stand for? Uh, they both stand for uh, helper T cells, basically a type of immune cell or a type of white blood cell. Got it. T yeah. helper cells. Okay. So we want to make sure they don't overhelp. <laughs> exactly. Over assist. Give us red spots. Now, you also mentioned you see a lot of patients who come in with things like acne. And that tends to be something that I associated more with adolescence. But there are some other age groups where acne can surprise you no matter how old you get. Yeah, there is adult acne. Um I would say, like you said, you know, we'd see more people with acne who are teenagers, but I, I do have a fair number of adult patients who have it as well. And I think wearing masks kind of helped bring that about a little bit. Yeah. So during COVID, uh, a lot of people started calling it mask knee. So getting acne underneath the mask, I think from, you know, all that occlusion and um, rubbing of, of the hair follicles. And our skin likes to breathe. Yeah. yeah. And when we cover it up and stuff, it can't breathe. Exactly. All right. So what do you do to treat acne these days? I kind of remember years ago being a teenager, having my wonderful bouts of acne, using some topical stuff. But there's a lot of advances since the many years ago that I was using stuff. What are the latest 
over-the-counter treatments and prescription treatments for it. So I would say that um, probably a lot of the female patients that I see have something called hormonal acne, which is exactly what it sounds like, acne that gets worse often during the menstrual cycle um, and has a, a large hormonal basis. So there's different ways that we can treat it. One of the newer, uh, there is a newer prescription cream available for hormonal acne called Winlevy, um, which is really nice because um, you know it, it specifically targets the hormonal basis of acne and can sometimes uh, be helpful because you can avoid some of the systemic side effects that can arise from taking an oral medication. Um, I would say that for acne though, there's, there's still a lot of, I would say more often than not actually, I use a lot of the, the same more traditional uh, older medications because they still work well. So those include things like benzoyl peroxide, uh, topical and oral antibiotics, uh, and retinoids, whether those are uh, topical like tretinoin or even uh, isotretinoin, also known as Accutane. So that's still used these days? Oh yeah, for sure. And pretty successful? Yeah. I would say Accutane or isotretinoin is still probably the best medication for acne there is. Um, I tell patients it's the closest thing that we have to a cure for acne. It's reserved for patients with either really severe cystic or scarring acne or for acne that's just really stubborn and doesn't seem to get better with other medications. And how long do you need to take something like that since it is a pill? Typically it's six to eight months. I dose it based on patient's body weight. Sometimes it, it takes a little bit longer. Um, the general rule is that maybe about a third of patients need to go back on Accutane after completing one course. I think in my experience it's a little bit lower, but even if that's the case, it's not the end of the world. I, I, I still think that um, yeah, Accutane is still a great medication, still a great treatment for acne, and yet six to eight months is the typical window. So some of the over-the-counter products you mentioned, benzoyl peroxide-based products, which they're available in a lot of the different pharmacies. You know, these are in your Neutrogena and some of your other Dove, a couple of other facial washes out there that are safe. And then you also mentioned that there could be a prescription version in addition to using some other oral medication. And then you mentioned some antibiotics. Is it safe to use antibiotics every day for skin problems? Is it a lower dose than usually you would use to treat other infections? Yeah, so it, it's, it's especially relevant when we're talking about oral antibiotics. So the concern long-term is that, um, well, I guess I should say that the reason that we use antibiotics for acne is not because we think that, we're, that you have an infection related to your acne. It's more because a lot of these antibiotics are also anti-inflammatory. So we use that more, we, we're using them for that property. Long-term, the concern is that because you're on an antibiotic, you could develop um, something called bacterial resistance, meaning that if you were to develop an infection uh, with a bacteria, that bacteria could be resistant to that antibiotic because your body's been exposed to it for such a long time. For that reason, we usually don't like to give oral antibiotics for more than a few months at a time. Um, but even for those, for those few months that you're on it, it is safe. So it is a good treatment, something you could use if you had to treat acne with something every day. And, you know, one of the things I think comes about is people get very worried about scarring and some of the effects of having acne that's untreated. Because once there is some scarring, that probably won't go away. Right. So um, one of the medications I mentioned earlier, uh, a topical retinoid called tretinoin, can help with scarring a little bit. It does help to build collagen so it can help to kind of fill in um, some of the acne scars. And then 
there's a lot of new newer cosmetic treatments available for acne scars as well things like uh, resurfacing and microneedling so those have kind of changed the way that we're able to manage acne scarring and and expectations that patients can have so that's good so even if you do get some some scarring there are some options for you yeah definitely and you mentioned that even using something like retinoids topically. Now, a few years back, there was that whole idea that Retin-A can cure my wrinkles. Can it still do that? So like I said, they do help to build uh, build collagen. And, and so for that reason, they can kind of plump fine lines and wrinkles. I think if you're looking to uh, treat deeper, more stubborn wrinkles, though, you're probably looking at more cosmetic treatment, something a little bit more than just a topical retinoid. And with that, what are some of the other types of treatments? Are we talking Botox? Exactly. So uh, there's a, Botox is probably the best known, um, something called a neuromodulator, things that help to basically relax your facial muscles to help improve wrinkles. Um, there's also another treatment called Zeomin, another one called Dysport. All of these basically work the same way to, to relax the muscles and they're all injected into the muscles um, specifically. But don't they wear off? They do. So the effects usually last I would say maybe three to six months, sometimes longer. It, it all depends on the patient, but uh, they do work well. All right, so I've got to get rid of those frown lines I keep finding every <laughs> morning. Okay. Now, the other big thing that I worry about, and I think a lot of folks do, are things like moles and areas that look like they could be skin cancer. What are the general rules that you tell folks about about how to observe a skin area that they're concerned about with cancer. I like the little alphabet mnemonic. Is that something dermatologists use? Yep, that's something I, I definitely uh, counsel my patients on is that ABCDE rule. So uh, ABCDE is a mnemonic that basically describes characteristics associated with moles that can be more concerning. So A is for asymmetry, meaning that your your moles are good if, they, if you can fold them in half and the sides match up. If, if one side doesn't look the same as the other, that would be more concerning. B is for borders, so we like moles that are, are nice, uh, round, regular moles, rather than ones that have jagged edges or blend into the skin in a weird way. C is for color, so we like moles that are all the same color all the way through, whether it be more of a light brown, a dark brown. Uh, ones that are all the same color are good. Ones that have multiple colors are more concerning. So if you have a mole that's maybe light brown, dark brown, red in one area, uh, blue or black, that would be one we want to take a look at. D is for diameter, so um, it refers to the size of a mole being uh, six millimeters, so that's a, about the size of a yellow number two pencil eraser. So ones that are bigger than, than that, may, may wanna, um, you may want to have that one examined. And then the most important one is E, which is evolution or change. So moles that are growing in size, changing in color, uh, definitely ones that become symptomatic, you know, itchy, painful, bleeding. Those are ones we want to take a look at. All right. So we've got the A, B, C, D, and E of funny-looking moles. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Dylan Lee and talk some more about what to do if you notice one of those skin mole areas that looks kind of concerning and what are the possible reasons that you have it. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'm here with my dermatology expert, Dr. Dylan Lee, and he just went over 
A, B, C, D, and E of skin cancer. So now here's my test. Can I remember the mnemonic? Okay. So A is asymmetry, jagged edge versus, versus looking like you could, I like the idea, like fold it over and have the edges or have it be a nice mm -hmm. circle that's symmetric. B is border. I guess those are those jagged edges more than more than the A. C is color. Is it funny colored? If it's all one color, that's one thing. If it starts to have different colors in it, oh, not so good. D is diameter. Got to be smaller than those old pencil erasers. If it starts getting, if, or if it's bigger, might want to have it checked out. And E, you mentioned evolution. Is it changing over time? I kind of look at E as also exposure. Are you continuing to expose it to something you shouldn't? Like sun. Now, for those of us who are of the paler complexion variety, in our younger years, we might have had way too much sun exposure. And it doesn't take a whole lot of sun exposure. It could just be a couple of bad sunburns that put us at risk as we get, as we get older. So when you talk with patients who have some concerns about sun exposure, what sorts of guidance do you give them? Is it ever too late to use sun protection? No, no, never too late. Um, and yeah, always a good idea to use sun protection. Even if, you know, I tell patients, even if you're only going to be going to the grocery store, you're going to be outside for 15 minutes. A lot of the skin cancers that we see are not necessarily from people who've had a lot of sunburns, but more from just cumulative sun exposure over their life. So just being outside during the day every day. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about those ABCDEs of the moles, if they're an atypical mole, we worry about it being skin cancer. There's more than one type of skin cancer. What are the main types of skin cancer that we worry about? So the most common is something called basal cell carcinoma. That's uh, one of the most common ones that we see. And then uh, there's also the second most common, which is squamous cell carcinoma. And then, of course, melanoma, which is one that we, you know, take very seriously. So let's talk about my friend, the basal cell carcinoma. What does it look like? If you were trying to describe that to somebody, I kind of remember this pearly white sort of description. But, but what makes a basal cell look like a basal cell? So I would say pearly is definitely the 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 classic characteristic. It kind of has this pink kind of pearly look to it. Um, and because the sun, like you mentioned, is one of the main triggers for skin cancer development, oftentimes these are going to be located in areas where you've had a lot of sun over your life. So, you know, the head and neck area, maybe on the, the back of your forearm, um, on your neck, uh, maybe on your upper trunk. So looking for a pink kind of pearly looking spot, oftentimes something that you may have thought was a pimple or a bug bite or a scab that just doesn't seem to be healing or is enlarging. Okay. How do we contrast that with our friends, the squamous cell cancers? So they can look really similar. A lot of times squamous cell carcinomas um, are a little more maybe scaly or crusty, but similar to the basal cells going to be located in areas where you've had sun exposure um, and often similar to basal cells as well. They can be things that just don't seem to be healing or, or can bleed. And once you get them, you're more likely to have more of them. Exactly. So once a patient has a skin cancer and it's treated, um, I like to see them in my clinic, you know, every six months to a year for, for annual or semi-annual skin checks. And the way we treat those tends to be different than melanoma. So you hear about some people saying, oh, my doctor, quote, froze it off or, quote, burnt it off or mm -hmm. just took it off. That would be more with the basal cell and squamous cell than it would be with our melanoma friends. Yeah, so melanoma has a much higher chance of 
spreading or metastasizing to other areas of the body, and it can do so sometimes really aggressively. So for that reason, when you have a melanoma, um, you're probably going to undergo something called an excision where the, the whole skin cancer is cut out. And sometimes we do those things, uh, we do excisions for basal or squamous cell skin cancers too, but melanoma is definitely one that we don't like to wait on. It needs to be taken care of as soon as possible. And once you've had a melanoma, are you more likely to get another one? You are. You are. So another good reason that uh, after you have a melanoma that you see your dermatologist regularly for monitoring and for skin checks. So anybody who's had a previous skin cancer, they need to have you on speed dial. I mean, they need to see their dermatologist regularly. Don't miss those skin checks because, you know, I sort of think of dermatologists as having kind of x-ray vision. You know, you can see what it looks like now, but you also can project what it'll turn into and take care of it when it's smaller. I might see it when it hits a certain stage and it's it would be obvious to you. So mm -hmm. if somebody's had that history, they really need to make sure that they get in regularly to have an overall skin check. Right. And, and I completely agree with what you said. I think in general, you know, the earlier that you can take take care of something, the better it's it's going to be for you just in terms of the prognosis of the skin cancer. But also, you know, if we're taking care of something when it's smaller, it's going to leave a smaller scar, just be less complicated. We like less complicated. Now, other than skin cancer and some of the other conditions that we've talked about already, psoriasis, eczema, uh, dermatitis, whether it be contact dermatitis, are there some safe, over-the-counter remedies that people can consider for some for some minor things like moisturizing their skin? I mean, should we be looking for for the type of treatments that that have the nice, pretty smells? Should we be looking for more of the the non-smelly kind of hypoallergenic things? And should we be going greasy, creamy ointment stuff or lotiony stuff? If we just want to have good overall skin, what do we put on it? So I think you can keep things pretty simple. I think a lot of times the stuff that uh, smells really good, unfortunately, can be a little bit more irritating because those fragrances and additives are sometimes allergens. So I usually like things that are a little more, um, I guess, targeted for sensitive skin. So maybe doesn't smell as good, but works really well as a moisturizer. There's so many brands that you can choose from. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. Um, I think things like... Cetaphil, CeraVe, Aveeno, Neutrogena, things that you can get at most um, grocery stores and at Costco, a Sam's Club, um, they work great. I tell my patients to put those things on right after they get out of the shower and pat themselves dry. Um, the reason I tell them to do it at that time is that your skin is still kind of moist from your bath. And so putting the lotion on at that time can kind of lock the water into your skin and keep it hydrated. And sunscreen, just wear it. Yeah, just every don't day. Ask. Just wear it every, every day. Every day, yeah, it should be part of your routine. And never too early to start. And never too late to start. Yeah, okay. never too late either. Well, you know, I think that's... There, it, do we find, are there certain types of sunscreens, you know, there's barrier, there's chemical sunscreens. Does it matter or is really the key just wear something so that you protect your skin? Yeah, so the, the best sunscreen is the one that you're going to want to wear every day at the end of the day. So, so some sunscreen is better than none. Um, there's evidence that maybe mineral sunscreens are better. So those are ones that contain either zinc oxide and or titanium dioxide. More traditional chemical sunscreens work by basically transforming that UV harmful radiation into something that's not harmful. 
versus mineral sunscreen like sunscreens like zinc and titanium basically reflect or block that UV radiation. All right. So the best one is the one you're going to wear. Yeah. That's a really important thing to know. Well, I really want to thank you for sharing with us the immense plethora of knowledge that you that you did about all these different spots, dots, red spots, psoriasis, eczema, basal cell, squamous cell. It's been an alphabet of learning in dermatology today. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. That's Dr. Dylan Lee. He is a dermatologist at Queens Medical Center, and he is right here back in the islands after spending some time training on the mainland. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more about ways to stay healthy right here in the islands, right here on The Body Show, every Monday. We'll see you then. Thank you.